Welcome to Glass Talk, Canada's podcast for the architectural glass industry. Now here's your host, Patrick Flannery. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Glass Talk. Today we spoke with uh, Dave DeRose from Synergy Partners. We talked to him about uh, two CSA standards that he is on the committees for, A440.6, covering high exposure fenestration, and S478, the durability standard, which has been upgraded from a guideline uh, and is now a, uh, a, a standard, a CSA standard that's available for use. Uh, two very, uh, very useful, very interesting standards that uh, I think we're all going to be interested in. Dave and I spoke about um, the new, the A440.6 is new last year. Uh, we spoke about uh, some of the holes in the industry, some of the issues that it fills, things that were never covered before, things that were never really specified before in, uh, uh, in, in fenestration installation, um, uh, ribbon type uh, fenestration, um, some curtain wall things that it touches, um, some, some ceiling issues, uh, uh, lots of uh, air water ingress issues that are, uh, that are covered. Uh, flashing. Uh, We got into all of that. Uh, And then we touched on the S478 durability standard, which uh, is something that's going to become more important as embodied carbon and life cycle analysis uh, come more online, uh, I think, across the country and across the world uh, as climate change issues become uh, uh, continue to to drive our standards in new directions. So uh, a great conversation with Dave, a very knowledgeable guy. And uh, I hope uh, I hope you were able to get some useful information out of this for sure. So now I bring you uh, Dave DeRose from Synergy Partners. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Dave DeRose from Synergy Partners. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we're uh, we're going to talk uh, about uh, CSA A440.6. Um, it, it is a new standard, and um, it's uh, a very important one. I think it's uh, it's going to address uh, I think some issues that were out there in the in the industry. It's been out for a little while now, and I'll let I'll let Dave get into all of that. Uh, but um, Dave is the is no better person to talk about it. He's the chair of the committee. Uh, David, why don't you uh, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about uh, about yourself, what you're doing with uh, Synergy Partners, and what you're doing for uh, CSA? Sure. So I'm uh, a managing principal and a project director at Synergy Partners. I've been in the industry since uh, 1997, so about 23, going on 24 year career, mostly dealing with repairing performance issues in building envelopes, so walls, windows, roofing systems. But uh, uh, I also, because you know, we learn so much by fixing buildings, we all usually offer that advice to developers or architects who are interested in uh, building more durable buildings that, and not reproducing some of the issues from past buildings. Uh, when it comes to CSA, I'm actually involved in two standards. One is S, a CSA S478, where I am the vice chair, and that's durability in buildings. Yep. And I'm also the chair of the subcommittee A440.6, which is our high exposure fenestration installation standard. So new standard. There was no preceding standards to this one. It came out in mid-2020. Not yet referenced in the building code, but it's available for use. We already have it in, for instance, in our 
project specifications. That installation is to follow CSA 440.6. So it's open for designers and building owners to use it in their in their projects to promote uh, what we felt was some holes in the industry when it came to high exposure fenestration installation. Now the 2020 NBC I don't think is even out yet. Um, are we anticipating it getting in there? No, it'll be it'll be in the next in the next version of the NBC is what we're aiming for. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, the timing of these things never never works out just the way we want, does it? <laughs> <laughs> but well, the important thing is is that there was, you know, what we found were some holes in the industry. The industry has come together to try to come up with an industry consensus on how to uh, address some of these holes. So even though it's not uh, yet referenced in the building code. I would still argue that the industry consensus is this is how you address the whole. So this is what everybody should be striving to accomplish. Absolutely. I, you know, why not look at it? You know, there's no, you don't have to wait till it's in the building code. I mean, uh, you know, you might as well start building that way now. And, uh, and then you're, then you're doing it already when the, when the, when the code gets updated. So that's, that's what right. makes the most sense. And that's, that's, that's why we like to, as far as possible, tell people about these standards even before they, uh, they land in the code. Right. Uh, learning right. about it after it comes out just means you're <laughs> going to get into a lot of trouble and be scrambling around <laughs> later on. So, okay, so let, let's get into it. Uh, uh, give me the scope of the code, uh, David, and uh, and what, what exactly we're addressing here. Yeah, the scope of the standard is intended for fenestration products in buildings of four or more stories in height of all occupancies. And it is intended to apply to both new and existing buildings. So in terms of the fenestration products, it covers everything within the scope of NAFs. Plus, it also includes if I have fenestration products that are installed, you know, let's say as uh, horizontal ribbons or strips or vertical ribbons or strips uh, or punched configurations that have curtain wall framing, then that also applies as well. Uh, window walls is also covered by the standard and storefronts is also covered by this standard. So okay. it doesn't, it excludes, you know, full curtain wall or full slope glazing installations because that's already covered. They're engineered, covered yeah, by they're engineered standards. anyways. Yeah, yeah. They're and engineered. they're fully covered by AMA standards. Yeah. So we wanted to concentrate on uh, more, you know, window walls or combination windows, those type of assemblies, uh, punched windows, the installation of punched windows, whether they're, you know, traditional window framing or even curtain wall framing, anything in a punch type or a strip type of configuration is, is what is covered by the standard. Uh, always, always um, uh, delivered, always delivered, fabricated, or manufactured on site as well, or does it no, matter? no, no, delivered, oh. fabricated, not manufactured on site. Oh, okay, okay, so definitely, yeah. definitely delivered, fabricated. Okay, that's good to know. Um, and so, give us some examples of uh, what 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 kinds of uh, what kinds of uh, instructions are in there. What I, I guess, I guess, just tell me that tell me the holes we're filling here. Tell me the things that weren't addressed in standards. That, that, we're, that we're solving here. Sure, absolutely. So uh, to start with, um, there are, you know, following some of the same type of chrono chronology as some of the other relatable fen fenestration standards like A440.4, we have sections to cover material requirements. And there's a bunch of new products that are always coming on the market, whether it's uh, flashing membranes, liquid applied flashings and so forth. So it covers those types of things, uh, different materials for shims, sealants, insulating materials, anchors. Uh, the other key thing is, is, you know, one of the great tools that we have in the standard is this compatibility matrix. So it has, you know, across the top, <clears throat> it has all the types of sealants, 
you know, silicones, polyurethanes, hybrids, polysulfites, thermoplastics, acrylics, butyls, all along the top. And then on the vertical axis, it has all of the different fenestration uh, material elements, uh, you know, whether it be setting blocks, gaskets, um, uh, membranes, uh, whether it's the, you know, the, the facer side or the asphaltic backside. It's got, you know, all the different fenestration product materials you can imagine. And then it's almost like a traffic light system where if it's, you know, green, you're good to go. If it's yellow, some caution, either with adhesion or compatibility. Orange means that there's some known compatibility, compatibility issues. So you should really look, look closely at it. And red is basically don't even try it because we know it's not going to work type of thing. So we think that, you know, that was a big hole in the industry in terms yeah. of, of knowledge, in terms of what's compatible with what. So we're hoping that that can, can solve some issues there. Uh, in terms of one of the other big holes is that there was always some debate regarding subsoil flashings and where they should be applied. You know, A440.4 took their own approach in terms of, um, uh, of you know, climate and drying and so forth and uh, the amount of rainwater wetting and so forth. So there's this way that they do it in A440.4, which they can afford to do because it's, it's low rise. So there's some areas where you may not need to do it and some uh, where, where you do. But what the approach we took in E440.6 is basically anything higher than four stories is high exposure. You need a subsoil flashing. So those are basically prescriptive, prescriptive mandated that in high exposure fenestration, you need subsoil flashings. Okay, so we think that that is going to make have a big impact as well. The other hole in the industry was the intent of the North American Fenestration Standard or NAFs was all always that windows intended to combination are to be tested in combination. It would, it would be typical for a window manufacturer or a finisher fixed window on its own. David, just hold on for a second. Or a, a door on its own or a spandrel on its own where I'm building a fixed or a spandrel. David, hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. You're freezing. Okay. You're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, the, the, the connection got weak. Um, okay. And, uh, and, and you started, uh, you started cutting up there. Start, okay. to start, start again with your point. Um, just like, let me note the time here. Okay. Okay. And just start again with your point uh, about uh, testing and combination. Okay. Yeah. Let me know when I can start. Go ahead. Okay. One of the other holes in the industry or one of the areas of weakness was the intent of the North American fenestration standard was always that fenestration products built in combination were to be tested in combination. And that's uh, one, you know, an area of weakness that we see because typically fenestration product manufacturers like to test individual components on their own a fixed window on its own, an awning on its own, a spandrel on its own. But the intent here is, let's take the example of a combination window or a window wall. If you're always gonna end up using a fixed over a spandrel with an awning next to a door, uh, why aren't all these tested in combination? So the standard makes it clear that these are to be tested in combination and it gives requirements of how big a mock-up should be in terms of height and width and all of the different elements that are to be included. And there's also some leeway there. So once a manufacturer has that test done, 
that may apply to multiple projects. So there is discretion for the design professional to say, oh yeah, I see this mock-up here. It wasn't specifically done for my project, but you know what? It does apply to my project because it has all the elements that I'm going to use on my project so I can rely on this mock-up. So there is some discretion there to reduce the burden on product uh, glazing, uh, finishation product manufacturers. Uh, the other, when when you do start the testing, there was always some debate about, okay, well, what sequence are we going to use? Are we used, you know, and some labs would use a curtain wall testing sequence and some would use other fenestration product uh, or window sequences that are more in line with some other uh, window standards. So we, we made a test sequence clear. So when you are testing these combination windows or window walls, there is uh, a sequence that has to be followed and there is a whole number of tests that are uh, you know, mandated, and then there's some that are optional that are at the discretion of the design professional. Um, I guess in terms of some other resources that are in the standard, there are also a number of annexes where we have uh, a bunch of uh, checklists to help with uh, just overall quality control and so forth. So for instance, we have a, a fenestration product pre-delivery checklist. So things that should be checked in the plant before that fenestration product even gets delivered. Then there's a pre-installation checklist on-site. Then there's an installation checklist of things you should be looking for on-site. Then there's a post-installation checklist. And then there's a, a maintenance uh, annex as well, because you know maintenance is a type of thing where uh, uh, you know it's often left, there's a gray and hazy area, it's often left to, oh, well, that's the owner's uh, uh, you know problem or responsibility. But there's some guidance here in terms of, you know, what the industry consensus is on what maintenance should look like. The other thing that's in the standard, uh, which is, um, I guess, timely from a climate change perspective, is that there is an annex on uh, a climate change, um, uh, on impacts of climate change, and some tips to deal with some of those climate change uh, impacts that we're seeing. So if you look traditionally at our, at our, our codes, Usually we're looking back, you know, we look back uh, 30 years or, or whatever, we come up with a bunch of data. And then when we do design, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, abide by or withstand, you know, some of the loads we've seen over the last 30 years type of thing. But this is the first, uh, there's, you know, in 2020, 2021, the CSA standards that are coming out all have annexes that deal with climate change or to get designers to and, and contractors and product manufacturers to start thinking about, you know, forward looking. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to, uh, with the help of NRC, trying to predict where climate loads are going and then trying to come up with some strategies and some tips uh, for what the intended impacts could be from climate change, you know, whether it's higher uh, UV exposure, whether it's more driving rain and so forth, and giving some practical tips on how to deal with climate change going forward. Awesome. Yeah, I, I want to touch on a few things you mentioned there. Um, um, I, I remember hearing about that sealant compatibility chart uh, at, uh, I think, a, uh, well, I think it was still then IGMA, now FGIA. Uh, meeting and they were they were talking about developing that and that, that seems like that's going to be tremendously useful uh, if uh, if people uh, uh, get it because that um, you know that that was always just a matter of guesswork really I mean <laughs> I, or I mean unless you had I mean obviously everybody had their everybody had their system that they that they or project specific testing that would have to happen but, yeah exactly so so that 
you know, that, that gives you some flexibility there on your, on your design side. I, I, I love the maintenance sheet. I mean, uh, you know, th this is something people can, you know, print off or do their own version of and leave it after the installation so that, you know, you, you don't get those, you don't get those callbacks, you know, when something, something goes wrong because no one's looked after the, the fenestration. So that's, you know, nice if, yeah, again, if it's adhered to. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, the annexes are non-mandatory anyway. So even if the yeah. standard was referenced tomorrow, it, the the annexes are non-mandatory. But they're there to offer guidance to the industry, at least if there is a some sort of a dispute between a, a manufacturer and an owner. At least there's a, a document we can turn to now and say, well, this is the industry consensus yeah. on one maintenance should be. I gave you, I gave you this sheet. Uh, you know, sorry yeah. you didn't follow it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, 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 that's kind of where that could, could go, but it's just helpful to have. Um, yeah, the climate change thing is, is, is interesting. George and I touched on that uh, uh, topic as well, actually talking about uh, A440.4 and, um, you know, things like, uh, I mean, George sees, you know, potentially uh, not, you know, prejudging anything, but George sees potentially, you know, a day when that subsill flashing is required uh, uh, everywhere on the, even on the low rise. Uh, uh, because, you know, if rain loads are increasing and Anarchan is saying, you know, things are too wet all the time. Well, you know, of course there's, there's debate in the residential window industry as to whether it's better to let things get wet and dry out and have air flowing or whether it's better to try to seal everything off and, 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 and not do that. Right. But, well, but when it comes to subsoil flashing, the intent there is if, you know, in the drainage tracks or, or if yeah. window gets into the, or if water gets into the glazing pocket and it leaks maybe over time through joints in the framing system, yeah. why would you want it to get into the wall? Like just catch it with a membrane and direct it to the outside. Yeah. So I, I don't think yeah. there's any dispute there. Like that's, that's in my mind, that's one of the lowest cost things that can be done to uh, tremendously improve the overall durability, not only of the fenestration product, but of the uh, entire surrounding wall as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree that I'm, I'm referencing some stuff I've seen that they're playing with, it's sort of a rain screen idea, uh, where, uh, where uh, the, the problem that's seen is that there's a pressure differential between the wall cavity and the outside, and it's actually sucking water in. Uh, but you, you're right. I mean, if it's if it's just the flashing membrane on it, that 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 can't help it keep it drier. I mean, the, the question right. is whether you're trying to seal around the the frame to 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 really to keep all the water out, or whether it's better to try to channel the water into the flashing, basically, and 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 have it get away that way. So yeah, maybe I'm misrepresenting the the, the issue there. Anyways, but anyways, George George sees a George sees a day maybe when uh, when there's more subsell flashing needed. What did what do you see? Um, what do you see as a as a potential changes as a potential update um, um, as you know if there is climate change or or maybe even without it uh, that 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 might uh, what 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 might that what what might the climate change drive in terms of changes to point six? Well, I I think uh, putting climate change aside just for a second, but just the overall energy efficiency goals that we have as a society. One of the things I foresee is that we're going to have to come up with uh, additional detailing. So in the annexes, we do have some typical details. What we have is we try to follow the critical barrier 
uh, philosophy from some of the other companion standards in terms of, well, when you do the installation, you have to make sure, let's say that, you know, you have to identify what the air barrier plane is in the wall and make sure it's continuous to the fenestration product through that interface. Same thing with the thermal barrier. So there are some candid, you know, some typical details in the back to give some guidance. But what I foresee is we're going to need a lot more of these typical details as an industry because you know, we're, we're, we're doing more and more insulation, let's say outboard of the sheathing, and we're driving more, uh, uh, you know, thicker assemblies, wider assemblies, thicker assemblies, however you want to look at it. And it's, you know, it's, it's causing us to challenge ourselves a little bit on how we're going to detail some of these interfaces. So I fully foresee more typical details required to address some of these, uh, you know, ongoing changing details as we strive for, you know, passive house construction or low carbon or low energy and all these types of, 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 of objectives that we're trying to achieve these days as a society. Yeah, I mean, that's, and that's kind of um, what I was thinking was, if you use this standard right now uh, on something that was supposed to be a, a passive house build or a net zero build, um, would you would you would you hit that using using the standard if your products well this is you have to remember this is an installation standard right right. so as an installation standard we're not really after the performance of the fenestration products within the boundaries of the fenestration product really what we're really trying to achieve is is the integration into the overall wall assembly let's say so really what we're what we're driving at here is is interfaces continuity of the critical barriers, whether it's the air barrier, whether it's the thermal barrier, whether it's the water, water penetration barrier or the water resistive barrier, sorry. Uh, so it's, it's, it's trying to accomplish more durable assemblies through more effective interface details and getting all of that continuity of the critical barriers uh, uh, right. Because you got to remember something. If you are building a passive house building or a sustainable building, low energy, low carbon, however you want to call it these days, it has to be that way for a certain amount of time or else what's the point? If this right. thing's going to start leaking and you need to replace a whole bunch of components, you haven't achieved your goals. Like you're, if you were to really trying to reduce the amount of embodied carbon, what that means is we can't have to, you know, we can't have installations where we're after five years, 10 years, 15, even 20 years where we're ripping stuff out and redoing it. Because all that embodied carbon now is gone and we're going to have to invest a whole bunch of more embodied carbon in the new assemblies. So the real impetus here is get the detailing right so that it's durable so we can hit our, you know, 50 year or whatever we're aiming for. You know, that's I'm talking a little bit about the uh, other standard that I work with in terms of durability here because I see it dovetailing nicely. But the intent there is, is like we really have to shoot for durable assemblies because we can't afford to keep, you know, either fixing things in certain ways or, or, or wholesale changes that are really going to affect our embodied carbon here. That's a great, that's a great point. And, and also though, I mean, I mean, the, 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 you know, the pushback I've heard from in conversations is uh, you know, they're telling us to build all these great products and high end, you know, high performance and, and, and really low U values on the glass and, 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 and very insulating frame systems and all the rest of it. But none of that is any good if it's not installed properly. Right. Absolutely. So, so, correct. so there would be an energy performance benefit. Am I not correct in, 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 in building according to this standard and having everything sealed up with, with, like you say, the continuous air barrier, the way that you're describing. Absolutely. Like at the end of the day, you're, you know, your buildings have to be airtight if you want to save energy. So, you know, we have to have that air barrier continuous from our walls to our fenestration products. 
And our thermal barriers have to be aligned as well, because right. if not, you're going to end up with big thermal bridges, which, you know, is, is a no-no, especially in passive house. It's, it's a big no-no to have thermal bridging. So mm -hmm. absolutely, they, the, all of the uh, uh, critical barrier type of requirements and discussions in the standard are critically important to achieve our energy efficiency goals and our sustainability goals. Absolutely. Is, is, is thermal bridging addressed in the standard or, 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 or it like was the standard uh, sort of constructed with, a, with a, a, an idea to reduce thermal bridging? Yeah, there's a section on thermal barrier continuity, and it talks about how the walls and the windows have to be, or in the the walls and the fenestration products have to be in a aligned in such a way that you don't get any flanking or thermal bridging and so forth. Correct. Well, that's a that's that the I'm, that that's a huge energy performance benefit. I, I was looking at a study a little while ago. Uh, I can't remember now who it was, but uh, you know, I mean, the impact of it is surprising. I mean, you you, you know, I I don't think you know people always think about it, but that I mean, in terms of, and then if um, this would also be helpful if you were doing some kind of a, a, a whole building energy analysis, right? And, and I, I think there's, am I right? So I think like the Ontario code envisions, you can do a prescriptive path or a, or a performance path on the building, right? So if you're doing it, if you're doing a whole building, if you're doing a whole building uh, trade-off, I mean, you want those, you know, trade-offs for one thing for another, this is helpful in, in because if your installation is better, the whole building performs better and maybe your fenestration products don't have to be as good as they would otherwise. Well, at the end of the day, once again, we don't like, we're not concentrating on the fenestration product itself, but right. as I keep, yeah, as I keep saying, if it's not installed correctly in terms of, you know, thermal barrier continuity, then there will be an impact which will affect the overall energy efficiency. So yes, you have to install it correctly as intended by design and having the thermal barrier continuous between your fenestration product and the wall. Cool. So we talked a little bit about, about um, things you see maybe the standard going for, uh, for climate change purposes. Uh, anything else you're thinking uh, is going to be a, a, an area for development in the, in, in the standard? Other, other, other things that you're, you might be working on, maybe you didn't have time to get in last time or, or, or that might be changed in the future. Where, where do you envision? Well, some, uh, some of the detailing, like we could use yeah. some more details in the back. So we kind of, um, you know, it's a little light, let's put it that way on the details in the back. So we mm -hmm. could use more. So we're all absolutely for our next version are gonna have to have more of that. Um, uh, you know, our testing sections um, in terms of performance, I think their testing sections are quite exhaustive. However, there's always room for, you know, improvement when it comes to, you know, as we, you know, as an industry, as we keep moving forward, we're gonna keep discovering new things, which I'm sure we're gonna have to uh, revise or update in the standards as well. But, um, I guess when it comes to climate change as well, we're like we're going to learn some stuff too in terms of how UV resistant some of our products are, some of our coatings and so forth. So there might be some room there as well, even just for the for considerations when it comes to sealants. Like if we're getting more solar loads, more UV loads, you know, lower modulus types of silicones and so so forth uh, might be more in order. Let's say uh, in terms of dealing with a lot more of these uh, movement cycles. So there might be some more, as we learn more, as we go forward, there might be some updates in terms of strategies in combating or dealing with uh, climate change. Tremendous, tremendous. We've got a little time, Dave. Uh, do you want to talk about the durability standard too a bit? Uh, we we could a little bit, yes. Yeah. Just, absolutely. Yeah, just to give, me the, uh, give me the scope and, uh, and, and, and the intent of that one. And sure. Sorry, what's the name of it again? I... I yeah, so it's the uh, CSA S478. Okay. 
Okay. It's called Durability in Buildings, and it did come out in 2019. Uh, once again, not yet referenced in the building code, but available to uh, designers and building owners to put in their owner requirements or in their specifications for uh, for inclusion in, in projects. So th this uh, standard that was issued in 2019 supersedes the guideline that was issued or created back in 1995. So it was written with mandatory language so that it can be used as a standard. Uh, it sets minimum requirements in creating durable buildings and elements, and it emphasizes the need to consider initial long-term costs, maintenance, access, and replacement in the selection of uh, building elements. The standard applies mostly to building envelope and structure, or only applies <laughs> to building envelope and structure. Yeah. And, and the way the standard works is that there's, uh, the main backbone of the standard is, is a few tables and everything kind of revolves around these tables. So the first table, which is table one, uh, really uh, provides the owner and the designer to select an overall design service life for the building. So there is a table where there's some uh, minimum design service lives and there's some range of design service lives. And I'll, I'll give you an example, for instance, a long life building, uh, the range of design service lives would be, let's say 50 to 99 years, and the minimum would be 50. So we had to have a minimum in there because there's you know, buildings like condominiums that are built not by the eventual owners, where we have to protect the public as well. So we have to have a minimum in there. So let's say for a long life building, the minimum design service life is selected, which is 50 years. Then what happens is then you need to uh, now define what the service life will be for the elements. And that will be a function of the overall design service life. So for instance, there will be, um, depending on the access to elements or on the consequences of failure, now you have to pick, let's say, you know, given that we're talking about fenestration products, you have to pick a design service life for the overall elements. So if maybe for now for your windows, let's say, you, you would uh, end up picking, like I said, the service life is now a function of the overall design service life. So typically, depending on the consequences of failure, it could be anywhere from 25, 50, or 100% of the overall design service life. So the way it ends out shaking out is that you will either, in a, let's say in a long life type of category, which is 50 years, you will either have building elements that you have that have to be designed and installed to either last you know, the full 50 years or a fraction of 50% of that, which would be 25 years, or 25% of that, which would be in this case, you know, 12 and a half years. And all of it depends on the consequences of failure. So if something, if you argue that's, or sorry, if, if we state that something is like totally buried in a wall assembly where it's very difficult to access, very costly to access, almost cost prohibitive to access, let's say like a subsoil flashing underneath a window, like the only way you can really fix that is to rip the whole window out. Right. So that subsoil flashing technically should have, uh, because of the difficulty in access to fix it, should have a service life that's consistent 100%. with the overall service life of the fenestration product. So for right. instance, if we pick... If we're expecting the 50-year service life for the window, then the subsoil flashing would have to be 50 years as well. Whereas an IGU is more accessible, but the consequences of failure of an IGU failure is that it's going to be very costly to repair. Because let's say you have a premature failure of a sealed unit, and now you have to replace all of them. That's going to be quite costly. So that would be something where that consequence of failure would be 50% of the service life. So as a minimum, our IGUs would have to last 25 years in a long-life building.
which should be not that hard to achieve if we're using you know proper perimeter seals, proper perimeter spacers, and so forth, which we know how to do. But you know sometimes for cost reasons and some residential products, some lower end perimeter seals or spacers are used where we might not actually, or some installation practices or fabrication practices lead us to have gaps in PIB sealant at the corners. So that's what we're trying to avoid. So we want to set some minimum criteria so that we're getting a chance of hitting you know, more durable assemblies and building elements. So that kind of in a nutshell is how the standard is gonna sh shake out. It's all coming back to me now. I heard uh, a presentation at a, at a OGMA meeting uh, by- uh, Ted Kessick. Thank you, Ted Kessick. Yep, uh, and about this, and uh, and he he loves that standard. <laughs> he, he must. He was on. He was. He was, he was on, on the, the committee. committee as well. Yes. Right. Yeah. He was. Yeah. He was on the committee. He does a great. He does a great talk on it. He had a number of sharp comments about um, what was it? Uh, 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 engineering, design engineering, or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 tend the tendency of looking for savings uh, in your uh, in your design when uh, when you're asking value for, engineering thank you I, the name yes. the word was escaping me value engineering yes he uh, he's not a fan <laughs> uh, Ted had a great talk on it no that listen that sounds like that sounds like a great standard um, and uh, you know something uh, uh, I, I hope people are adopting. I, that, that doesn't sound. That doesn't actually. Sound like uh, just to cut in, yeah. I got my first call the other day where uh, a designer called me and said, "Yeah, our project references this durability standard. Uh, can you give me a kind of a Cosmos version on what it includes?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so IO Infrastructure Ontario is starting to include it. So hey, fantastic! Hey, now you know. That, hey, that's right. That's right. So get get out there and take a look at the standard because. People are going to be asking for it with any with any luck at all, right? Yeah, they. I, I, is that something that I, it doesn't sound like something that would ever end up in code, though? Really? Yeah, no, it's it intended yeah. to end up in the is MBC, good, absolutely. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Okay, that's that was the intent. Like I said, it was written with mandatory language to take over for the guidelines, so that it would get adopted by the MBC. So we're in the process of doing our, you know, writing our code change request as a committee, yeah. so for hopeful inclusion uh, in the MBC. Oh, phenomenal! Well, I, I I think that that'll be a nice contribution to uh, to, to the built environment for sure. Um, yeah, there's not too many in the world when it comes to durability standards, so we're no. we're setting some some pretty high precedents and 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 bars in in Canada here. Well, yeah, and and you know, there, there's going to be there's going to be interest in that because you know, like you say, as as the embodied carbon. I mean, I think California already has a, a embodied carbon standards. Uh, uh, down there in, 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 at least in their public uh, contracts. And, uh, and, you know, whatever California does just seems to ultimately, you know, leak out to everywhere else in the world, uh, or at least in North America. Um, and, uh, it, you know, so the day is, the day is coming. I, I, I'm going to have a, a speaker on embodied carbon or, or some aspects of it at uh, Top Glass. And uh, because I, I think that's something that's coming. It's something people are going to have to think a little bit more about um, and, and that durability standards, definitely a useful, a useful part of that, because they're going to be asking for life cycle analysis on this stuff. And, and we're going to have to do the work anyways, to, uh, to understand how long these products last, how long they're intended to last. Is there a testing, is, is there some way of proving 
the durability that's included in this, David, or is, is it just, how was how that determined? Yeah, so the way the standard works is you have to come up with design service lives for the building and each of the corresponding elements. Mm -hmm. And then there has to be a, 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 also a, a, an estimated uh, durability as well, which is gonna have to be based on the way the standard is written. It's gonna be based on things like either testing or track record or modeling. So there's got, there has to be on the chart, you know, there's a, in the annex of the standard, it, it shows a chart of how the designer is supposed to lay out the design service life and how to have the, uh, you know, uh, columns for the uh, design service life and then the predicted service life. And the predicted service life has to exceed the design service life or else what's the point, right? right. And then there's there are some caveats in the standard because we realize that because we're raising the bar in the industry, it's gonna take some time for product manufacturers to catch up and to prove compliance in terms of service lives and so forth. So we do have some clauses that allow for the fact that, you know, if you, if you, can't uh, comply with the standard. Meaning, for instance, if for some reason you needed, I don't know, let's say a roof assembly that was supposed to last 40 years and there is no real way of proving it. Well, there is some clauses in the standard that say, okay, well, where you can't, not that you don't want to comply, but where, where you can't comply, then a life, full life cycle cost analysis has to be done with different options, uh, considering first costs, maintenance costs, uh, service lives and so forth. And then that, uh, uh, life cycle cost analysis has to live with the durability plan so that everybody can see how the decisions were made on the project. Would you say that the, um, well, I guess it's not, it's not actually specifying, it's not actually specifying what the, the length of time of, of, of anything is supposed to be. It's just, you need a, you need a statement in there of, uh, of how, of how much of the design, how much of the life cycle of the design uh, life your product is going to last for, right? Like you said, it's a percentage of the, of the designed life of the building. So, so I guess there's really no, there isn't necessarily a big challenge here to manufacturers of fenestration products, right? Because they just have to state what they expect it to be. It's not like you have to hit, you know, 50 years, you have to hit, hundred years, right? Or am I well, wrong? But the intent that? would be, but the intent would be if you are providing uh, a fenestration product, let, let's go to the IGU because that's the easy example. Okay. Right. So let's say in a long life building, 50 years and the IGU replacement would fall, let's say in the category, which is the 50% of the service life, which was 25 years. At the you end of the day, to. if I build an IGU that has a whole bunch of breaches at the corners in the PIB, and uh, there's an average life on these units of 15 years, well, then you know what? That IGU manufacturer didn't fulfill the requirements. So quite yeah. frankly, they could be liable because they were supposed to provide a product that was supposed to have an average service life of 25 and they provided something that only lasted 15. Right. So the standard is intended to have some teeth. Okay. And, but, it, but it doesn't, I, I get, yeah. Where I was going was um, whether there's a challenge to the industry here in terms of being able to comply. Uh, like, like the, you know, the, the, the big hue and cry that's going up is about, you know, NRCAN would like to increase uh, U values on residential windows to, you know, uh, a 0.08 or something by 2032. And, you know, a lot of guys are saying, well, uh, great. And now I, I, I can't build anything but triples and, you know, they probably need low E and, and, and all this kind of thing. But, but there really isn't anything like that here. 
really. Well, the, you know, at the end of the day, if, yeah, like at the end of the day, like a 50-year uh, design service life, let's say for a long life building, even if the fenestration product has to last 50 years, you know, you can argue there if it's built with subsoil flashings, even if, you know, at year 30, it starts leaking into the wall, but there's a subsoil flashing to catch it and direct it to the outside. Nobody may even be the wiser, so you may you'll you're more likely to hit that overall 50-year mark before you start have to ripping out windows. Whereas if you build, if you put a window assembly in a wall, and at year 15 or 20 it starts leaking like crazy into the wall, and now all of a sudden all the windows need to be replaced, well you didn't hit your 50-year timeline. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. so that's why I think these two standards dovetail nicely together, and I'm glad you brought the S478 into this discussion yeah. because there are some things you can do in the installation process. Or, or installation, yeah, process that are going to end up providing or maximizing the overall durability for the products themselves. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think that I think that um, that aspect that you spoke about of 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 having it understood that you have to pay special attention to the stuff that's hard to get to. Uh, that 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 if it if it if it breaks down, you're going to be ripping walls apart to get to get at Correct. it. You know, that's got to be one of the the major cost downfall, you know, because, and, you know, frankly, people are building and saying, well, no one's going to see that anyways. Well, <laughs> you know, the, the, those are, those are, those are, those are pretty major issues if they're, if they're allowed to fail. So, so having that. Well, it's, it's like uh, Ted Kessick uses the analogy, you know, it's kind of like the timing belt on the, uh, in the car where, yeah. you know, where you used to have to take apart half your car just to get to that timing belt. Yeah. Well, couldn't you put the timing belt somewhere where you can easily get to it? <laughs> or like the other analogy uses is, you know, when they started developing cars, they knew that the tires were going to wear pretty regularly. So they're very easy to access and change. Yeah. Right. So that's the types of philosophies that are in the standard. Anything that is going to have a low service life or has to be readily, uh, has to be replaced, has to be readily accessible. So you can get to it and change it. You can't have it buried in the wall like that timing belt buried in the car where you have to take half the wall apart because in that case you're gonna it's gonna have to last the life of the fenestration product yeah, or else what's it, the point yeah you can't yeah not if, i mean stuff is gonna have to be buried in the wall but not the stuff you don't want it to fail then <laughs> that better be the longest exactly no that's exactly that's that's that's, that's terrific listen david thanks for that overview uh i i think this is going to be useful information to anybody who's uh Looking forward at, uh, at what they're going to be doing over the next little while on, on some of these areas, some of the installation standards. Uh, if, people have, uh, if people have questions for you, uh, where can they get a hold of you? Uh, Synergypartners.ca uh, uh, is our website. Mm -hmm. And uh, my email address, dderose at synergypartners.ca. Uh, but you just go to our website. All my contact information is there. So once again, synergypartners.ca. You can find me under, I believe, under the managing principles or under the contacts, and you can just drop me a line or give me a call. Be happy to talk about anything. Great information, David, and best of luck in the uh, efforts with these standards going forward. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Glass Talk. You can find this episode at glasscanadamag.com or on the major podcasting services. Glass Talk is a presentation of Glass Canada Magazine and Annex Business Media.